The names I'm about to offer you now are legendary in the Australian story. The Gibson, the Great Sandy, the Little Sandy, the Simpson, the Streslecki, the Tanami, all our great deserts that both captivate and terrify us a bit. There are other lesser-discussed regions, the Barclay Tableland, the Channel Country, the Flinders Ranges, the Nullarbor, the Pilbara, the Riverina. They're all part of our arid zones, or we might call it the outback. In all, they represent five million square kilometres, three quarters of our island continent, rich with ecological complexity and part of what my last guest today will dub the Australian immensity. Dr Steve Morton is determined to tell arid Australia as it is, in all its diversity, that when people say desert, they picture something like the Sahara, big clouds of sweeping sand, when in fact the Australian experience is really quite different. Dr Morton's an ecologist who worked with CSIRO for years investigating arid zones and he's produced, along with photographer Mike Gillam, a beautiful work called Australian Deserts. Not just a picture book, but quite dense with information and quite romantic. And it's my pleasure to welcome him now. (laughs) Thank you, Geraldine. Good, Good day. Why did we become so arid here in Australia? Well, because because the continent is so old, Geraldine, it drifted from uh, its original position 90 million years ago, uh, attached to Gondwana, into the subtropical zone where the rainfalls are inherently lower and and more uncertain. So it's our geological history which delivered us aridity. aridity. Right. And, And when roughly do we assume that happened? I mean, what's the latest scholarship about this? Well, about about 20 million years ago, the continent drifted into this zone and began to, began to dry out, and that's when the rainforest retreated to the east coast, and aridity and eucalypts and fire and kangaroos spread across the rest of Australia. Yeah, so it goes back probably to the Miocene epoch in, uh, 20 million years ago beginning, and then passing through a whole series of ice age challenges when uh, conditions became cold and dry over the last 300,000 years. We have a long history of being dry. Well, (laughs) that was my question. How do we compare with other parts of the world for this sort of drift? Well, well, all the continents have drifted, but but Australia's got its own unique trajectory, which is which is you know um, it only began to to stop drifting when it rammed into uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, be- beginning in the Miocene, so so it's 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 unique to Australia, and and of course its expression dryness in Australia is also uh, uncharacteristic of other parts of the of the the world's deserts. So what does South yeah. America, for instance, wouldn't have something similar? Well, well, not in, not in the way that our climate is expressed, Geraldine. The book goes into this in very fine detail. The thing about it is not just the age of the of the, of, of the place and its ancient origins. Um, it's also the fact that aridity here is characterised by extreme climatic uncertainty. That that's the unique aspect of Australia. Mm. That the climate is the most erratic on Earth, and and that's that's because the continent is so flat. Uh, that there are no barriers to uh, that, that uplift air and and provide for rain to fall. That means that the entire continent is exposed to the El Nino Southern Oscillation and all the other related mm. uh, f- climate phenomena. Uh, one of the things you say is when people say desert, they picture something like the Sahara, you know, big clouds of sweeping sand, when in fact the Australian experience, this is really your passion, I think, is quite different. Thanks, Geraldine. That's dead right. So, so people are surprised uh, 
Yes, it's called a desert, um, but, but when you come and visit it, for, for much of it, for much of that 5 million square kilometres, it's actually a shrubland or a grassland or even a woodland. And the reason for that is that the pattern of rainfall, uh, the uncertainty of rainfall, delivers not just long dry periods, but occasional periods of flooding rain. That's the characteristic of the place. And so the flooding rains provide an opportunity for perennial plants to establish themselves, get their roots down, and simultaneously they recharge all those hidden moisture stores in the soil that allow the plants to persist through the inevitable dry times that intervene. So, so the place is in fact much more vegetated than, than, mm. uh, than, than people expect and many other deserts are. And it's for that reason the very word desert is rather confusing because often you're looking at a shrubland. It's only a desert so named in Australia, such as the Gibson, because our society, our, the, the white society, has not found a way to make use of it economically. The, the, the Pilbara can look a bit like the Sahara. Uh, yeah, yes, of course. So when it gets dry, uh, you know, four or five or six years or ten years of dry spell, then of course it looks pretty arid. Um, but, but you know that the rains are going to come again at some time. Mm. Well, I'm going to pose you now some of the exact questions you pose and try to answer in your book. The first one being, because of this incredible uncertain rainfall, how do plants cope with this volatility and stay alive? Really, how do they over years? So through physiological adaptation to ensure that perennial plants can withstand the harsh long dry spells that go on for years. So that's why there's a grey-green tint in the vegetation, Geraldine. It's all protected by hairs and resins, um, and, and they do that in order to allow themselves to, to be sustained by minor trickles of moisture brought up from soil moisture stores by deep roots. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have ephemeral plants that don't bother to fight that. They just create seeds, uh, which last for years, grow after a pulse of rain, and then set more seed and, and disappear. They avoid it. So we're really watching Darwin's theories absolutely play out here, are we? Oh, well, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, you, yes, I mean, the whole place is explicable for, through, the, through the lens of evolution, yes. What animals are the most abundant and diverse in these arid places then, and why so? Well, the, play, the, the animals that do best are those that also can adopt the sort of strategy of a perennial plant. And they are social insects, termites and ants. And they have colonies to which they can bring back supplies that allow them to, to harvest when abundance is there and to sustain themselves by locking down and, and, and using their own stores during the intervening dry periods. So ants and termites dominate. Right. And then what about when the floods do come then? Because we're sort of used to them adapting to the dry, but the floods are another story. Like thinking of what's been happening in um, the whole, um, uh, you know, Lake Air and so on, where they've now had what two years of rain yeah. that they haven't expected. So, what what's it like then for those animals? Right. So, so that's another class of animals altogether that they utilise these peaks. They are called the boom and bust species. And the pelicans that, that, that fly to Lake Eyre and use the resource when it's present are classic examples of that. So, so the boom and bust strategy is almost unique to Australia. It's certainly very distinctive here. Because you have these massive peaks of production and biological activity, there's a groups of organisms that have found ways to hop from peak to peak and, and use it when it's there and bail out when it's not. 
So they're at the other end of the spectrum from those social insects that, that, are, that are harvesting uh, in the peak and then using their own stores to withstand the long dry spells. Is that making sense? Yeah, oh, yeah well, it is. It's just extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, it is it, well, extraordinary it, the more you talk about it, actually. It, well, it is, and that's clearly that's been my passion for, for 30 or 40 years, is to try and understand this place in its own merits, not, not by bringing an external lens to it like, why isn't it like the Sahara? But just trying to learn why it is like it is. Why does it feel uh, like it does? Why does it look like it does? Why does it behave like it does? That's what we scientists have been trying to understand through, through these past decades. What about the significance of landscape patterns you can see in, in vegetation due to the soil that they sit in? Does that vary? Yeah, th- thanks again, Jordan, because that, that, that's how the moisture... Uh, the, the pattern of moisture plays out. So when you get heavy rain, the water, of course, moves across the landscape. It runs to the lowest point. And that whole process carries with it nutrient and forms soils and, and creates moisture stores. So the run-on and run-off hydrology of inland Australia is the, the dominant ecological force. That's what creates the landscape pattern that, that you see when you're flying across it in an aeroplane. Mm. Indeed you do. And are you talking primarily sand as opposed to clay, by the way? I mean, maybe there are far, far more delineations that I'm not, uh, you know, not describing. I do wonder about that. Well, yeah, there, there are many delineations, yes. No, I'm, I'm not talking about any specific type of soil. Every soil type in this highly differentiated ancient landscape has its own uh, um, peculiarities of moisture storage or, or, or runoff. And so sands are the most absorbent and, and, and that they characterise the western deserts. Because they're infertile, we call them deserts. Uh, in the firmer soils in the eastern part of the Arizona, in the Channel Country, in the Riverina, the, the water runs from harder soils into channels and that creates the biological activity. So, so depending on where you are in the Arizona, Geraldine, uh, the, the water movement is different but the, but the fundamentals of, of that water movement and their ecological consequence are the same. Mm. I mean, your own um, con- conversion to this interest in our arid lands is almost spiritual, Steve. Uh, in your, you write about in your <laughs> teens, uh, going with your father from his farm in the Murray River region across the Riverina to the Hay Plain, and you were there chatting with other farmers in a creek bed as you do, <laughs> thick salt bush around black box trees, when all the birds started to sing and you were enthralled. And this quote I've taken, I was shaken loose from my destiny as a farmer and transformed into a desert ecolo- ecologist to which you've devoted yourself. By the sound of you, that thrill has never really left you. <laughs> Thank you for quoting that. Yes, that, that's, that's a true story. That's what happened. Uh, these brown songlarks, I realised, you know, as the years went by, were calling to me, not just to their mates. And, yes, I, 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 became, I became emotionally attached to the, to, to the country that I was attempting to study as a scientist. And if that's spiritual, well, so be it. Um, it is certainly more than simply an intellectual interest, uh, Geraldine. It's, it's an emotional attachment. I love it. It certainly sounds like that. I mean, there's there's other parts of your book which you you make the point that uh, you what you've learned is the other big lesson of arid zone life. Looking down at the patch of ground you stand on, in other words, your feet, and at the horizon, and you say that is one of the key lessons from desert life. Why do both matter? 
because you can't understand what's going on at your feet if you're not taking account of the landscape pattern in which you're embedded. And going back to the movement of water, uh, you know, over the surface of the ground and beneath the surface, that, that water is driving the life that you're seeing at your feet. And if you don't look at the landscape, you won't realise where you are in that, in that uh, spectrum of water availability. Mm. That, that, that's, that's the marvel of it. Um, it. It is interpretable. It's immense and vast and it seems so uh, un- uncaring of, of human beings. But, but if you choose to look at it carefully, you can find a way into it and understand that immensity. Which I suppose is exactly what the Indigenous people have done. Uh, and again, you, you, you make the point that this is not a book uh, about Indigenous understanding, which you have incredible respect for, um, but they did have this real sense of a story being able to be interpreted, if I hear you correctly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, in capitals, uh, yes, to that, Geraldine, that proposition. So, so look, in the end, I, I reckon my, my major response to the place is one of awe or humility. Humility at the, at the extraordinary cosmology uh, that Aboriginal people developed to explain the formation and the functioning of the country that they belonged to. Uh, you know, awe and humility at the, at the way in which the early white uh, settlers found a way to make a living, uh, you know, s- scratching as it was in the early pastoral activity and the fact that, the, that these the successes to them are still present in a, in a remarkable community across inland Australia. Yes, it's a matter of being humble and, and, and awed by the place. Well, Steve, I think you're an extremely good evangelist for that. Thank you very <laughs> much for joining us and congratulations. Thanks, Geraldine. Dr. Steve Morton, the very passionate Steve Morton, who produced this book, Australian Deserts, along with photographer Mike Gillam. It's published by CSIRO. One of our um, texts, one of my memorable trips was driving down the Canning after a very wet period in 2001. Every uh, interdunal valley was a riot of plants, but each with its own variety of plants differing widely. Thank you, David Wade in Canberra. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.